Thank you for listening to sermon podcasts from the Anglican Church Noosa. This is the fourth in our series on Exodus, Let My People Go. Today's preacher is Bishop Stephen Hale from Melbourne, and the topic is The Escape. Our reading today is from Exodus chapter 13, verses 17, through to chapter 14, verse 31. This can be found on the Pew Bibles on page 69. Exodus chapter 13, 17 to 14, 31. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said, if they face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road through, toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for a battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Ethram on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihothrev, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephron. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, What have we done? Why have we let the Israelites go and lost their service? So he went to his chariot, made ready, and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with the other chariots of Egypt, with officers all over, over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians... All of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hathroth, opposite Baal-Zephron. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. Moses Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians will see today, sorry, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and horsemen. Then the angel of the God, the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of the Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with strong east winds and turned it to dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians, their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots, the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh, and that had followed the Egyptian, the, sorry, the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. That was indeed a very long reading, so well done. Uh, we all love a great escape story, don't we? Uh, and there's lots of great escape stories. I happen to have um, always been interested in Ernest Shackleton, and when I came up on last Monday on the plane, they had the latest movie that's been made on his great ventures, so there was a fantastic opportunity to watch this latest movie. Uh, Shackleton attempted to cross the Antarctic, and no one had ever done that before. This is way back in 1914. Uh, and sadly, his expedition got stuck in the ice. Their, their ship, which was powered by sail, got to a certain point where they couldn't go any further. They had hoped the ice would break up when the summers came, but it didn't. And eventually the ice uh, impacted the ship in such a way that it broke up and was destroyed. So here they were kind of not basically onto the Antarctic already. They were on the edge of the Antarctic and working out what the heck they were going to do. Uh, they started walking back from whence they'd come in the hope they'd get to a point where the little whale boats they had, uh, they could start using those little whale boats. There were 22 people involved. Uh, and they made their way to um, Elephant Island, which was the, the closest place they could get to. 
Elephant Island is really just a pile of huge rocks covered in ice sitting in the middle of the Southern Ocean. Uh, and it was hardly hospitable. So they re it wasn't a sustainable long-term solution to end up on uh, Elephant Island, which was uninhabited. So Shackleton determined that the only way they could survive was for some of them uh, out of the party to go to an island called the South Georgia Island, which is in the Great Southern Ocean, a very, very long way from South America. Uh, and a little party of six set out in this one whale boat. Uh, three of them would be awake, uh, one of whom was holding the little sail, another one was holding the tiller, and the other one was bailing water out. Uh, and they covered 1,800 kilometres in the most treacherous of conditions, uh, huge swells and seas. Uh, and miraculously, they ended up getting to South Georgia Island. Uh, sadly, when they got to South Georgia Island, where there were whaling stations, which they hoped would be the basis by which they could go back to get to the other people who they'd left behind and to their freedom, uh, they discovered they were on the wrong side of the island. So again, the party split, and three of them had to traverse the South Georgia Island, which had never been done before. Uh, that wasn't as simple as just walking across a few hills. It was uh, mighty peaks they had to cover, which were snow-covered, uh, glaciers, which were incredibly dangerous to cover on foot. They didn't have any of the appropriate equipment or clothing to do this sort of mighty deed. Uh, and as well as that, ice um, fields that they had to traverse, um, many of which were perilous, and in fact, one of them fell into one of the ice and they had to get him out. It's an amazing story. Uh, they did eventually get to the whaling station. They were able to send a party out to retrieve... Uh, the three men who had been left on South Georgia Island, and 12 months later, after they'd got back to South America, uh, they sent another boat out to pick up the remaining party who had been on Elephant Island for over a year. Uh, and, and the other amazing aspect was that they were down to their last rations on the last day <laughs> when the boat came to Elephant Island to rescue them. All 22 people survived uh, an incredible feat uh, and Shackleton is held up as being an incredible example of both inspiring leadership as well as strategic and capable leadership because of what he was able to do to help hold it all together through the most arduous of adventures. Well, the book of Exodus is the great escape story of the Old Testament. For those of us who are Christian, for us the great moment is the death of Jesus, which we will celebrate uh, shortly when we share in the Lord's Supper together. And we look back to that as being the key moment uh, in our salvation along with Christ's resurrection, his ascension into glory, and all that comes after that. But for the people of the Old Testament, it was the great moment for them. And as Alan Cole puts it, what the cross of Christ is to the Christian today, the Exodus was to the ancient Israelite. Uh, and it was therefore incredibly significant. Uh, the, I think one of the key verses is right out in the beginning of uh, Genesis, uh, in chapter, Exodus rather, in chapter 2, where it says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry of, for help went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So that's right at the, the outset of this journey. They were in slavery. They'd been there for 430 years. They were a very large number of people because God had blessed them while they were in slavery in Israel. And in fact, amazingly, when Jacob came to Israel to find, meet with his son Joseph, who was the means by which the people, all the people were su survived because of the famine of that day. There were only 66 in number. And so the promise to Abraham that he'd be the father of a great nation, uh, which included a huge, vast crowd of people, had been fulfilled, but it had been fulfilled 
while they were in captivity and in slavery. So they groaned and cried out to God and asked for God to liberate them. Now, you've just uh, been working your way through the book of Exodus, so you've been through the plagues. uh, And the last and most terrible of the plagues was the killing of the firstborn sons and the firstborn animals, the most hideous of things to contemplate. And so the Pharaoh had finally come to his senses and said, you can go, get out. We're sick of you uh, and we want to be rid of you. Uh, And therefore, they were actually blessed, unable to leave. So carrying their belongings with them, plus the silver and the gold that somewhat bizarrely the Egyptians gave them as they left, uh, they they started the journey, which became what's called the Exodus. Now, it is hard to get your head around the scale of what's involved here. Uh, it would be like the equivalent to half the people who live in Brisbane on the other side of the river, uh, crossing the river somehow, the Brisbane River, uh, and making their way to the promised land of the Sunshine Coast. That's, that is what we're talking about here, and that doesn't even include Victorians. So, you know, uh, thank you for not asking me any questions about the Melbourne weather. All the people at morning tea this morning thought that you were inferring something about Melbourne weather. I don't know what you would have been thinking. but um, uh, So that's a digression. So 600,000 men, it says, plus women and children, uh, plus the many other people who went with them because it wasn't just the Israelites. The other foreigners who were in the land of Egypt went as well, plus animals and livestock. So after 430 years, they finally have their freedom and they're heading out. Now, if you're concerned about the historicity of these actions, I'd recommend the podcast by, called Undeceptions by John Dixon. Uh, Linda's going to put it on wherever you put things in this church, so you'll be able to have access to this. It's episode number 46. And John talks to a guy called John Hoffmeyer, who's a professor in Old Testament and Near Eastern Studies. But as well as that, he's an Egyptologist, so he's an expert on Egypt uh, and everything related to Egypt. Uh, The podcast goes for about an hour, but if you go to the actual website, you'll also find a transcript of the actual conversation. And in fact, I think that's probably easier than listening to the podcast. And he's got incredible insight into the particularities of what's going on here, the historic details and what people think about it. Uh, And it gives, I think, a very plausible explanation as to the historicity of this particular event. So the events picks up where we uh, started off in our reading today. And in spite of the vast multitude, God takes them on a somewhat circuitous route. Uh, And the reason he did that was was because if the Egyptians were to follow, they would think that they were lost uh, and think that they would be easy to plunder. Uh, It's a rather strange thing, but they did, but that's what they did. They lived, we're told, dressed for battle and carrying the bones of Joseph, uh, who was to be taken into Canaan and buried in the promised land. The Lord goes before them literally. By day there's a pillar of cloud and by night there's a pillar of fire, both remarkable symbols of God's active presence with them. And as they set out, uh, the people presumably are in high spirits, but then they discover that the Pharaoh and his chariots and troops are in hot pursuit. Uh, Like every biblical story, it's full of twists and turns. Uh, And every biblical story has absurdities. So having let them go. Pharaoh then decides this is terrible because they've lost all their servants uh, and they won't be able to live without their servants. So he changes his mind as a politician. He does a flip, a backflip. And as you know, politicians are famous for their backflips. And he heads out to capture them. The people themselves are there in a state, the people of Israel in a state of disarray. uh, And they're in the desert fleeing. And they say to Moses, why did you bring us here into the desert to be killed and buried? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? 
you could hardly ever argue that the people of God in Israel were consistent. Uh, I mean, they had pleaded for their freedom. And here they now are in a total state of despair saying we're going to be destroyed and ruined. Now, in one sense, their reaction was totally understandable. Yet there was no real trust and confidence in God. And in spite of experiencing the 10 plagues and all of the destruction that took place and God's hand in all of that, in spite of the fact that God had raised up Moses to be their leader, and in spite of the fact that they had the pillar going before and the pillar going behind, there's still no real faith being evidenced by these people. Well, Moses amazingly says this, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Amazing word from Moses, isn't it? And you can imagine the temerity he must have felt because he didn't yet know what was really going to happen, did he? And how God was actually indeed going to rescue them. He was trusting God, but it must have been a bit of a mystery as to how this vast crowd of people were actually going to be saved, particularly as they headed towards the Red Sea. So uh, the mighty armies are bearing down, and, and, Mo- and Moses says, don't be afraid, stand firm, you will be saved, uh, and the Lord will fight for you. It's a great phrase, isn't it? The Lord will fight for you. Now, easy to say, much harder to do, and they didn't yet know, as I said, how God would deliver them. So Moses as does his, as he's directed. He raises his staff, the waters of the Red Sea are parted, And if you go to that podcast, he'll deal with the whole issue of whether it's the Red Sea or not. So I'm not going to bore you with all the details today. It's too complicated. But um, as I've said, it's got a good argument about what all that might mean. Uh, The waters miraculously part. The people of Israel following the the, uh, pillar of fire follow on. Uh, And then when the Egyptian army eventually gets there, they head into the waters. The the, uh, pillar of cloud moves to the back of the people of Israel. So they're actually going in darkness. And then eventually the waters come back and they're all destroyed and the people of Israel are left to be amazed at the liberation of God. Well, uh, Moses, uh, as I've said, stretched out his hand and he says these words, that day the Lord saved Israel from the, the hands of the Egyptians. The people saw the Lord's great power. The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses, his servant. Exodus is an amazing salvation event, and it's all based on the fact that God heard their cry. It's God's response to their dire situation and his heart to rescue and to save them. He listened, he responded, he remembered his covenant with the people of Israel through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob, and he acted through human agents, even those who opposed him at some points. And isn't that how God continues to work today? He hears us, he actually responds to us, and he works through human agents to do his work today. So what can we make of all this? Well, firstly, God is sovereign. He's in control. It's not always obvious that God's in control in the world in which we live today, is it? Uh, We're beset by many challenges and troubles, and one of the tensions of living in the 21st century with all of the digital technology that we have at our disposal is that we're conscious of every problem everywhere, all the time, anywhere. Are we not? If there's something terrible happening in the world, we'll hear about it. Uh, And the cumulative consequence of that is overwhelming uh, for us mere mortals as we seek to live our lives here on uh, what they call the sunny coast. Is that what they call it? 
Yeah. Uh, is the Gold Coast the Goldie Coast? I don't, I've never, I've never been able to work that one out. But anyway, that's that's a digression. Uh, the GC. Oh, thank you. That's very helpful. Um, so, you know, living as we do in the context like we live in, it doesn't. It's not always obvious that God's in control, is it? It may be to you because you're a person of faith, but in a wider sense, God's largely been airbrushed out of human discourse and public discourse. He doesn't seemingly exist, and he doesn't seemingly seem to be doing anything in particular. Well, God is in control, both in the slavery, because they flourished even though they were enslaved, and God was in control in this mighty act of deliverance. He was sovereign, and his plan and his purpose was coming to fulfillment. Israel had become a great nation, and Israel was thrown out by the Pharaoh, was his decision, uh, and Israel was blessed with gold and silver, so they went out with great uh, livestock as well as uh, resources. And Moses was raised up by God in spite of all of his own particular challenges, and they were guided, protected, and saved. Uh, in the next chapter, we have the Song of Moses, where it says, Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall, and the deep waters congested in the heart of the, congealed rather, in the heart of the sea. So we need to hang to the fact, onto the reality that God is in control. As I've said, it may not seem obvious, but that God is still the God of this universe. He does have the whole world in his powerful hands. Uh, and God does have a plan and purpose that he is unfolding. And God is at work in and through his people in all sorts of surprising ways to, t- to impact people's hearts and lives. And I'm sure if we had time this morning, there'd be stories that you could tell uh, of God being at work. It may not be spectacular in terms of the exodus, <laughs> uh, but it's still God at work in all sorts of ways. But secondly, the reality of salvation. Uh, For the people of Israel, it was incredibly obvious that God had rescued them, was it not? They'd lived through an incredibly profound experience of seeing God's hand at work literally, directly, physically, and in an incredibly overt way. And they told that story from generation to generation because it was the heart of their very existence. Rather than dying as they thought they were going to do in Egypt and, and in a sense, disappearing, they were rescued by God and they were on their way to the promised land. Now, again and again in Israel, they were brought back to the story of the Exodus because it was the clear sign that they were God's redeemed people, that they'd been saved by God's mighty hand and that they were a special people who'd been set apart to be the means by which all the nations on earth would be blessed. And we can see that has unfolded today. So as future generations called this to mind, they were reminded again that this was for, their, it was for them as well. Uh, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed, and in your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling, is what it says in the Song of Moses. Now, in the same way that we know for us, historically, there was a person called Jesus Christ who did live on this world, he did great deeds, and... He was put to death on a cross. He was raised to death on the third day from death, and he ascended into glory. And as shortly in the liturgy, we'll get to the point where we will declare yet again that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And we believe those things with certainty, don't we? 
if Christ could be put to death and could rise to glory, uh, then God, we can be as equally as confident that Christ will come in his time to take us to be with himself. And it doesn't really matter whether you die and go to glory straight away or whether you Christ somehow miraculously does return uh, and we're present while this great event takes place. We believe in that future event, which will be the ushering in of a new era. And for us, as we call to mind Christ's saving actions, that for us is our crossing of the Red Sea, is it not? It's our great escape. It's our great exodus. It's the means by which God has enabled us to go from one side to the other side, from going, uh, being cut off from God to being in relationship with God, from being in a position where we have no hope to being in a position where we have the hope of Christ and the hope of future glory. Uh, sadly and tragically, Australia has a rising rate of suicide, uh, like many Western countries, and it's one of the great tragedies of the era in which we live. Uh, and I, I would suggest, it's only a suggestion because I'm not an expert on suicide, uh, that one of the reasons is because people lack hope. They're despairing because they don't have any sense of what the future might hold. Uh, I don't know what Chris and Linda's experience is like, but one of the worst funerals I've ever had to take was a, person, a young girl who had suicided uh, in an incredibly tragic set of circumstances. It was an incredibly despairing event uh, and very challenging to preach the hope of Christ into that context. Well, we do have the hope of glory, do we not? And it's all based on Christ's action which we look back to, uh, and but we live in the reality of that today. So for us, we celebrate and give thanks to God for the great escape. And as you uh, come forward this morning to reach out your hands to receive uh, the piece of bread and to drink from the little cup, it's an incredibly tangible reminder, is it not, of Christ's death on your behalf, the hope you have of glory, that his uh, body was broken for you and his blood was shed, uh, shed for you. And it's an incredible opportunity to actually commit yourself afresh to living for him and serving him. Because uh, God worked through Moses and he still works in his world today through his people today. It, as I've said before, it may not be spectacular, but he's still at work uh, and he entrusts his work to us uh, to faithfully serve him today. So use that moment, that little moment, to commit yourself afresh to Christ and to be available to serve him in his way as he leads you this week. And finally and lastly, God isn't working his purpose out. As I've already said, uh, it's not always obvious that God's in control and that his purpose is being fulfilled, but you have to believe that both in good times as well as in challenging times, that, that God is in control and his purpose is working out in your life. Don't you? Uh, and that's part of the journey of faith. Uh, the people of, in the, in the, as they were fleeing panicked because they saw the Egyptian coming Moses had to stand before them and reassure them that God would fight for them and be with them and we need to cling to that reality that God is in control uh, and as we face challenging situations to trust him as the Israelites ultimately did uh, and I hope that you will be an example and witness into this community of people who are people of hope uh, and people who do trust in something other than themselves but trust in a mighty God who's there to fight for them. Amen. The Anglican Church Noosa is an evangelical Anglican church on the northern end of the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia. Our vision is living to love and proclaim Jesus. Our core values are being Christ-centred, Bible-based, spirit-led and mission-shaped. If you have found this sermon helpful, 
and would like to contribute to the ongoing ministry of ACN, please go to our website, anglicanchurchnoosa.org forward slash giving. Thank you for listening.